Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Joining me today is Demetra George, and we're going to be talking about the myth of the descent of Inanna and how it's connected with the uh, cycle of Venus retrograde. So, hey, Demetra, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Chris. Yeah, this is fun. We've been talking about some of this over this past week, and I'm glad we're having the chance to discuss it more thoroughly. Yeah, so this is something that's come up um, over the past few weeks because part of the premise is that um, Anana was one of the most revered and popular goddesses in ancient Mesopotamia, and she was a goddess of love and fertility, but also a goddess of war. And um, you've given lectures on Anana before. I remember attending a lecture of yours back in 2005 where you talked about how this ancient myth of the descent of Anana was connected with the Venus retrograde cycle. Um, and what was interesting recently that both you and I noticed and a lot of other astrologers noticed mm -hmm. is that um, on July 21st, the Barbie movie was released. And that was the same day that Venus stationed retrograde. And at that time, a couple of days later, there was a writer, um, there was an article being passed around by a writer named Meg Ellison, right. who pointed out that there was actually a bunch of striking parallels with the myth mm -hmm. of Inanna in the Barbie movie, which um, it wasn't clear that they were deliberate, but they may have just come up accidentally. So I thought that we could talk about all of those topics today to see how right. it's all intertwined in some weird and kind of interesting way. Right. It's it's a fascinating premise that we're um, going to embark on here. On one hand, um, the myth of Inanna speaks about her descent to the underworld and her return. And within that, her the nature of her relationship with her husband, Dumuzi. But the myth of the dying and resurrected goddess or god was an ancient myth that manifested in many different cultures using different deities and many cultures had different versions of that um, and so on one hand it's an archetypal story but there are specific um, characteristics to the Inanna myth in particular that seem to be reflected in the Barbie movie so we're trying to hold the vision that it's both a larger story than only Inanna, and yet many of the particulars are right there with Inanna's story. Yeah, and that's I guess that's part of the nature of archetypes is sometimes yeah. they bubble up in culture and transcend different times and different cultures mm -hmm. and, and show up independently in different ways. Um, so let me read the article since it gives kind of the premise. I'll just read the intro of the article because okay. it outlines it pretty um, clearly. And I should mention, since we're going to be talking about the Barbie movie and some of the story, that there will be spoilers. So if, if anybody hasn't seen it yet and you yeah. want to avoid spoilers, you should probably watch the movie first before listening yeah. to this, if you care about that. But if you don't care about spoilers, then listen on. All right. So here is the article. It was published in on a website called wildhunt.org, called the Wild Hunt Pagan News and Perspectives. And it was published by a writer named Meg Ellison on July 23rd, 2023. So a couple of days after the movie came out and it's titled Barbie is the New Anana. So here's, I just, I'll just read the opening paragraph. Mm -hmm. She says, 
Once upon a time, there was a beautiful goddess queen who became obsessed with thoughts of the underworld and decided that she had to see it for herself to understand the inexorable mystery that draws all living things towards their death. She succumbs to the same end as all living things, yet help reaches her and she escapes back to her own pleasant and lovely realms, unscathed but changed by her experience. Upon her return, she discovers her lover has taken her throne, covered himself in her glory, and upended her kingdom. She must take it back from him and exchange him for her own presence in the underworld, as no one is allowed to escape death. The goddess queen in question here is Anana, the ancient Sumerian fertility goddess and principal character in the first story written by an author who signed her name in human history. 2,000 years before the Common Era, a woman named Enheduanna committed to clay tablets the story of traveling to the underworld. This story has many versions, many translations, and the original meanings are somewhat obscure to us across the gulf of time. The most recent version of this story is Greta Gerwig's new film, Barbie. So that's the opening of the article. Yeah. And it's just like, it's just this amazing article. And I wanted to give a shout out to that writer, Meg Ellison, because the rest of the article is just brilliant, where she just shows some of the parallels with the Barbie movie. Mm -hmm. um, but two of the most striking, of course, are the opening, where it's like you have this um, goddess type character who's living in this idyllic world and then she starts thinking of death basically which is true in both the barbie movie and the anonymous myth and then also some of the other parallels later especially the coming back and finding that her lover had like usurped her kingdom mm -hmm. which was also very striking yeah. in both stories um so where should we start with all of that in terms of talking about some of the parallels should we start start with talking about Anana and some of those things? Yeah, let's uh, do a little thing on Inanna and then talk about the, um, there have been a number of ac academic and astrological suggestions that the cycle of the planet Venus, which the ancient Mesopotamians had studied very carefully from at least the second, third millennium BCE, we have both artistic and textual evidence that the story of Inanna is a metaphor for the cycle of the planet Venus, whom they identified with Inanna in her direct and retrograde motion. And uh, what was so fascinating was that the release of um, the movie Barbie happened on the Venus retrograde and that that is the, one of the critical points in the story of Inanna is her descent to the underworld. And in the cycle of Venus, the retrograde motion starts her descent. And so, you know, we've wondered, was this deliberate? And probably not. I don't see even if the um, writer of the movie was aware of the Venus-Inanna parallel that she had any control of when there would be the U.S. release, and uh, even if she could have convinced the distributors and producers to use astrology to time that, that's very unlikely. So it's just a expression of the incredible synchronicity and a beautiful manifestation of a totally 
popular and well-seen movie about Barbie's descent to the underworld would happen on the Venus retrograde that classically is linked with Inanna's descent to the underworld. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that, which is just the synchronicities are crazy. Like here's yeah. the chart, for example, for July 21st, 2023. And we see Venus there at 28 Leo. And within 24 hours of that, she switches to stationary retrograde and then turns around at 28 degrees Leo and goes retrograde for the next 40 days and 40 nights. Mm -hmm. So the movie was released literally right on the Venus retrograde at 28 degrees of Leo. And as I did research for this, um, which I talked about more extensively in a podcast with Nick Diggin Best on my Patreon, um, I did some some research and went back and found out that Greta Gerwig herself, who is the writer as well as the director of the film, that she was actually born in this on the on the day of a Venus retrograde as well, when Venus stationed retrograde in Virgo on August 4th, 1983. Um, so we can see Venus stationing here at nine degrees of Virgo and that's not only that she was born on the day that Venus stationed, but also it's the same eight-year synodic cycle because Venus repeats its retrogrades every eight years in the same sign, minus two degrees. Um, so this was one of those increments of like eight years, 2023, relative to 1983. So that's kind of crazy and not accidental. And then something else I noticed recently right. <laughs> to, to make just, it which is like um, um, believe, unbelievably believable yeah, yeah. So to make it even weirder is yeah. um this book titled Anana Queen of Heaven and Earth her stories and hymns from Sumer by Diane Wolkstein and Samuel Noah Kramer this is one of the first books that really published the full myth of the descent of Anana and it's the main reference book that most scholars have drawn on over the course of the past 40 years mm -hmm. for talking about this myth and that's influenced a lot of the contemporary yeah. discussions about it and guess what this book according to amazon and according to google was released on august 3rd 1983 which not only was the within days of venus stationing retrograde but also that was within a day of Greta Gerwig being born. So she was actually born the book that this, right. the day, almost the day that this myth was right. published in the first place in one of its most popular modern forums, which again is just another crazy bit of, of synchronicity. Exactly. So we have the release of the book, the birth date of Greta Gerwig being virtually the same with the Venus retrograde signature and the Venus retrograde being the day in which the Barbie film was released in the US. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's just um, crazy. And then the last bit of Venus retrograde craziness that ties Barbie in with it is that Barbie right. was released in 1959. And I went back and I was reading a biography about yeah. this. And it said that Barbie herself came out in March. It, she was first debuted at like a toy fair in March of 1959, but initially the launch wasn't a success and the founder was really depressed and disappointed that it wasn't received well, um, largely by the, the businesses she was trying to sell it to, like Sears and other ones that were 
sort of male dominated businesses that didn't think there would be a market for an adult um, doll that was marketed to, to kids. Um, and so the founder was disappointed, but then later that summer through advertising and marketing and word of mouth and other things, um, Barbie became wildly popular. And that summer of 1959 was when Venus went retrograde in Virgo and Leo, um, which is the same retrograde cycle that the 1983 retrograde was under when Greta Gerwig was born. Mm -hmm. And it was the same retrograde cycle under which the Barbie movie was eventually released in 2023. So Barbie herself is also tied in with this Venus retrograde and Leo cycle going all the way back to 1959. Okay. Right. So there we are. And that might be a, a good time to uh, show the correspondences between the Inanna story and the Venus cycle itself so that our listeners have, besides just saying, oh, Venus retrograde, this and that, they see it within a larger cosmological and mythological context. Yeah. All right. Okay. So let's get into talking about yeah. Inanna. Um, so, and talking about the myth. So, should we jump right into the myth itself? Well, let's just set the place of Sumeria being in the ancient Near East, where present day southern Iraq is now, more or less, just so right. people can visualize it geographically. And that this is one of the earliest civilizations. It's sometimes called the cradle of civilization. And this is where we see the, quote, invention of writing that occurred with uh, these little notches on baked clay tablets. And some of the earliest pieces of writings on the tablets were not only their myths, um, and the descent of Inanna, those hymns of Inanna were among the earliest literature that was inscribed on these tablets. But this is also the same time that we have the first astrological evidence of astronomer priests looking to the skies, seeing the movements of planets that they believed were one of the various manifestations of their gods and writing down what their movement was, and then making correlations to the events that we saw on Earth. So we have in this time period where the myth of Inanna arose was not only the cradle of Western civilization, um, there are other things going on in the Eastern civilizations, but we'll keep our focus on Mesopotamia. Um, not only was it the cradle of that, but it was the sort of... Um, uh, origin the seedbed of astrology of western astrology so and those two factors we have to hold in our minds simultaneously this and is even, like yeah. the this is the very very earliest strata of western astrology like the very right. earliest origins going back to 2000 to 3000 bce right exactly okay. and even before we have evidence of writing there were artistic depictions of their goddess Inanna shown, and her symbol was the eight-pointed star and the five-pointed star. And five and eight are very um, important numbers in Venus's um, synodic cycle and synodic return cycle. And do you want to say just a couple of words about that? 
or we can get to that later or no, I think that would be this would be a good opportunity to yeah. do that and just to reiterate that. So I've, we talked about this a little bit more extensively in the Venus retrograde episode I did in June with Nick Digan Best okay. and Patrick Patrick Watson. But just to show a diagram from that, um, in terms of the eight pointed star and the eight year cycle, um, what you have to know is just that. Venus will go retrograde in roughly the same signs of the zodiac approximately every eight years. So for example, Venus is going retrograde in Leo here from July to September 2023 during the summer in the northern hemisphere of 2023. And if you go back eight years and you look at an ephemeris or if you just cast a chart for the same time frame of July through September of 2015, you'll see that Venus also went retrograde in Leo back then in 2015 as well. And if you go eight years before that, you'll see that Venus also went retrograde in Leo back in 2007, eight years before 2015. And it just keeps going back in time in these eight-year increments where you'll have this repetition over and over again every eight years. So that's one of the reasons that eight-year thing is such a dependable timing technique with mm -hmm. Venus retrogrades. And you can actually yeah. see repetitions of events happening in eight-year increments as a result of that in astrology, that it's incredibly striking then that in this super early phase with the goddess Anana that was associated with Venus, that they actually made her symbol an eight-pointed star. Right, exactly, exactly. So here's one yeah. depiction of that from Mesopotamia that shows mm -hmm. the sun and the moon and Venus up in the top left-hand corner, and you can see the eight-pointed star that represented Venus. Mm -hmm. okay, so, so. And, the, and the assumption is that that eight-pointedness refers to the synodic cycle of these eight-year repetitions of the Venus retrogrades. Right. right. So we can set out uh, an assumption that as early as 3000 BCE, the ancient Sumerians had already studied and understood the cycle of Venus, particularly with the eightfold quality, and put that in their art alongside the images of the goddess a good five, six, seven hundred years before the first writing was set down where they started making the um, car, they're already probably making correlations, but they started writing those correlations down between the movements of the planets and events on earth. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that, which is just like the basic premise of astrology right. is right. they started noticing this property of nature where when certain things would happen in the sky, certain things would happen on earth at the same time, mm -hmm. but then by extension also, they probably started noticing that when the same things happened in the sky in eight-year increments, there would be a similar repetition on Earth every eight years, especially during the Venus retrogrades. Mm -hmm. And eventually they started um, writing these things down or passing them on as part of an oral tradition through um, statements about what had happened and re records of it, but also probably through stories. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, so... Um, moving closer to speaking about Inanna, uh, on one hand, we can tell the story of Inanna simply, but what I'd also like to do is put out a notion that has an idea that has been 
floating around the astrological community for at least 30 years here and there. I first became aware of it and was teaching it in the 1990s. And I think it was in 2005 that you heard the talk that I gave at that particular time. And yeah. so what we're going to pre what we're going to present right now is not like discovered right now, but it's been part of the background discussion among astrologers for a number of decades. And one of the early people to talk about it was Ronnie Gail Dreyer in her book, Venus, the Goddess and the Planet. But it was also in circulation um, earlier than Ronnie. And you, we discovered last night, it appears in some academic publications as well that even predate that, that they were associating uh, the anonymous story is an astral myth connected with Venus. Yeah, it seemed yeah. like there were citations going back to the 1970s and 80s, yeah. and that it seems like a common um, agreed upon thing in some of the academic scholarship okay. at this point that the myth of the descent of Inanna was tied in with the astronomical cycles of visibility of Venus. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to say Venus slash Inanna here. Um, both planet and goddess were known, um, Inanna was known as the goddess of love and the fertility of the land in her evening star appearance. And she was known as the goddess of battle and war in her morning star appearance. And Venus's general visibility in the skies, either in the west as an evening star or in the east as a morning star. And so that understanding was there early on. And one, the evening star appearance was this love and peace and harmony. And the morning star was battle and war and um, assertiveness. And the story of Inanna was that she was the queen of heaven and of earth. And as a young woman, it became time for her to marry. And she was presented with two alternatives. One was the farmer from who she had affections, but that her uh, brothers and father said, no, 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 you actually want to marry the shepherd Demutsi. And she was persuaded to make that choice and they became married and there was the celebration of their marriage that was a uh, part of what would become in um, ritual the sacred marriage rite and one of the ideas is that because she was the goddess of not only love but of the fertility of the land that if the goddess Venus Inanna was satisfied in love and fulfilled in love and sexually happy, then likewise the crops of the earth would flourish in growth. And so Inanna's Venusian well-being was what was critical in Sumeria having an economy of um, grain production that 
led to having a prosperity and food to feed the people. So those two elements of Inanna were totally intertwined. And that's um, really and, interesting. Yeah. Also, like as I was reading more about this over the past yeah. two weeks, I was understanding better how um, one in these like early, what is it, agrarian societies mm -hmm. were growing crops and food um, on the one hand was part of sustaining the population, but also if you had an overabundance, if you had mm -hmm. extra crops lying around, right. once you, you met the basic needs of the populace, if there was an excess, then you could sell those off or trade them. And then there would be extra wealth and like prosperity as well. Right. Um, so there's like that aspect of it, but also that they were directly linking or making a parallel between like human fertility and like the fertility of the land right. and sort of treating those two things as as intertwined or one in the same symbolically yes and this is much much later we get venus as the ruler of taurus the productivity and fertility of land and money and economic prosperity and venus is the ruler of libra having to do with relationship and union with the other so we see these two like 2000 year later planetary assignments of venus to zodiacal signs that wouldn't be articulated way into the future from this story already the qualities associated with uh, venus are um well developed in the um what inanna represented the significations of inanna so we have inanna gets married uh, they have a sacred marriage between the king and inanna and there are indications that in the um centuries afterwards each year when venus became an evening star and first made her um her rise in the western skies in the evenings and rose this was the goddess of love shining down from heavens and that it was a time when animals should start coupling and people should start coupling and the um king and the high priestess would have a ceremonial union whether it was literal or symbolic is up to debate and then this would ensure the fertility of the land. And um, as the planet Venus rises higher in the Western sky um, for the next 180 days after her initial evening rise, Inanna comes into her full glory and power. And she matures from a young girl to a you know, goddess queen in her own right. And one could surmise, if we're looking for astrological interpretation, that this represents Venus in her phase, this evening star, direct in motion, moving relatively fast, gaining an elevation of having a more lovely, loving, peaceful, harmonious, cooperative, supporting union with the other orientation. And as she reaches her height of power, being at the height of her creativity and productivity that's supported by her connection with another. Okay. For sure. Would this be a good time to show the diagram? 
that would be, yeah, that would be wonderful to have the diagram as a, a side um, while okay. we're speaking. So this is the diagram for those watching the video version on which depicts the synodic cycle of Venus, yeah. which synodic cycle means it's its relationship to the sun and how the different phases in the relationship to the sun actually dictate the different parts of Venus's overall cycle mm -hmm. of appearance, as well as its movements direct or retrograde and its speed fast or slow. Um, so the starting point that we're talking about here is is the is coming out of the conjunction with the sun when venus is direct down at the bottom of the diagram which is marked zero and going into number one which is when venus makes her evening rise um, where she becomes visible um, as a star on the western horizon mm -hmm. um, just after sunset yeah. in the eve in the evenings and so this is a diagram that you and I and Paula Bellamini designed. So shout out to our design graphic designer, Paula, yeah. for putting this together based on Demetra's specifications. Yes, and thank you, Paula, for oh, your wonderful work and being available last minute to, to do this. Yeah. And I, you know, be, should just make an aside here. There's a lot of, keep the diagram up, Chris, if you can. Sure. There's a lot of discussion in our community. Should the cycle begin at the superior conjunction or the inferior conjunction? There are reasons given for both. Um, but for this story, I have chosen to put number one at the evening rise because this is where Inanna is a young girl and she's about to get, she gets married. And this is where the story begins. Um, so then we've moved up to point two on this diagram, uh, which is right at the um, height of this curve where Venus has reached her highest elevation in the western sky at night at around 48 degrees. Some cycles, it's uh, 47, 46. Each cycle is a little bit variable, but this is the average. and. At that point, she hears that her brother-in-law, Nergal, um, who lives in the underworld with her sister, Ereshkigal, who's the queen of the underworld, that he's died. And she thinks that she should go down there to attend his funeral rites. Right. So this is where, in terms of the specific myth of Inanna, or what's called the, mm -hmm. the descent of Inanna into the underworld, where it starts, where it opens, saying that she's contemplating um, that she set her mind on the underworld or the great below. Mm -hmm. So the very beginning of the Sumerian myth yeah. says, from the great heaven, she set her mind on the great below. From the great heaven, the goddess set her mind on the great below. From the great heaven, Anana set her mind on the great below. My mistress abandoned heaven, abandoned earth, and descended to the underworld. Anana abandoned heaven, abandoned earth, and descended to the underworld. Okay. Um, so, so, so that's why, for our purposes in trying to connect where in Venus's cycle 
in your interpretation, mm -hmm. it would begin. We think that it, you, you and I both agree basically yeah. that the story of, of the descent begins at Venus's maximum elongation. And then especially when she stations and turns retrograde. Yeah. Right. The idea of the descent begins at that point. Okay. And right. She, takes her a while to get it together to actually embark upon their, her journey but the idea that i should go on this journey happens okay. and we might all reflect upon um situations in our own lives where our life is going really great we have a wonderful relationship that relationship is stable enough that our creative energy can be used for other creative projects that we're doing that are flourishing and then there are those first like uncomfortable feelings like is this all there is like is there something else like I could be doing I wonder about this thing over there that like I wonder what that would be like that I could do instead of what I'm doing. And so it also internally marks the curiosity for the unknown that something other than what you have that's like really good. It's like if it's not, you know, if it's not broken, like don't start tinkering with it. But we there are many times when our lives are not broken, but our impulses are aroused to start moving towards something else. And this is right. like the point at which Inanna finds herself as she considers the trip. And right. Yeah. Or, or also in which a person sometimes living in the height of one's life and having a good life and being at the height of like youth mm -hmm. or prosperity or other things, but then there's like an intrusion of something else and of thoughts of something negative, like the most negative thing for most mortals yeah. is like contemplation of death. And that's what was so interesting in the Barbie movie. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> is the whole opening of the movie is she's living in this like paradise right. where every day is like the best day yeah. and she just hangs out with her friends and like they're having dance parties and stuff. Diamonds under my eyes. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday and so is tomorrow and every day from now until forever. And then all of a sudden she's she's in the middle of a dance party and she says, uh, what does she say? She says, hey, do you guys ever think of think death? About, yeah. About dying. Do you guys ever think about dying? And and it's everything screeches to a halt. And then she's like, okay, never mind. I just joking. Mm -hmm. And but that's this point in the story is exactly. like the contemplation of that or even of of tragedy or or something along those yeah, lines. Right. And you know, as a woman and with many women in the audience, as she thought about her death, what we found very funny was her feet went flat so she couldn't wear her high heels anymore. And she began to see the horror of cellulite on her legs. And that this evoked like this recognition and laughter of so many women in the audience yeah we totally get like the point in our own aging when those things start to happen um so in preparation for her journey back to inana in preparation for do you want to say something else i want to talk just about decking her out decking herself out only just could you explain 
if we could back up just a second, yeah. like this initial part astronomically of the cycle of, um, oh yeah, you know, when she is like what we're talking about in this part of the cycle after evening rise, that's when she makes her first appearance and this entire stage up to maximum elongation is like what's happening at that point is Venus is appearing in the night sky as literally the brightest star in the, right, in the sky. Exactly. Um, there's no other object that's brighter than Venus besides the moon and the sun during the day. Yeah. But Venus literally is like the right. brightest star at that point, right? Right. And she's rising higher and higher in the sky until her elevation is around 48 degrees from the horizon. And anyone, if you're looking at your chart and what I'm going to say now is a simple version. It's a little bit more complex, but let's just leave it for this at the moment. If you have a um, an evening star Venus where Venus is behind the sun and there's a difference of 48 degrees between your sun and your Venus, then you, when you were born, Venus was at or near her maximum height in the sky as evening star in her full power and glory as a woman who was not only creative, but a woman who is in love and loved and supported by that relationship. Okay. Right. And in a chart, in an actual chart, chart, like if you're looking at it in a chart, so here's the chart for July 21st, 2023. And Venus never gets more than a maximum of 48 degrees away mm -hmm. from the sun in the zodiac. Um, so when she was station about to station retrograde, if you just animate the chart and move it to sunset, which is when the sun hits the degree of the descendant, mm -hmm. it then sets underneath the horizon. And right after sunset, it becomes dark out. So what happens right after sunset is then all of a sudden the stars become visible in the sky mm -hmm. again at night after being invisible during the day. And one of the first stars that you would see at this point mm -hmm. after, shortly after sunset would be yeah. Venus, which will always be right over there on the horizon shortly after sunset on the Western mm -hmm. horizon. Right. But it's the height of her elevation she will be 45, around 48 degrees distant from the sun. And this is like 50 days between her um, greatest elevation and before she turns retrograde. So it takes a while for her to get from her peak point to when she turns retrograde. So this is um, going back to the preparation period. She has thoughts of going there to the underworld and she decks herself out in all of her symbols of power. Um, she's going to go as like, you know, the queen of heaven on this great journey and she has to look like a queen and she has a headdress on and lapis lazuli beads around her neck and these egg shaped beads on the tip of each breast and a, a breastplate and a ring and a gown and then the part that both Chris and I like our eyes pop wide open on was her measuring rod measuring line by which she would measure the heavens and use the measurement of the heavens as a tool for building temples that were in alignment 
with um, the stars and constellations in the sky. And we'll jump into this with Enheidwana um, in a little bit, but let's get through Venus retrograde and then we can go back. Sure. Okay. So Venus decks herself out. And from that high point, she starts getting lower in the sky each night. She's still in the Western sky. She's at her highest point, but she starts going down. And then we have the point about 50 days later that she stands still and turns retrograde. And 14 days after that, she sets in the evening sky and we can no longer see her. And that is her um, descent. Now, for people who are born during this period, starting gradually from post-maximum elongation, going down to when she stations retrograde, right up into the heliacal set. Um, she hears this uh, from a psychological point of view. She hears this um, call into the unconscious realm of emotions. It's something beside the bright, happy world that Barbie has been living in. You know, every day is a Barbie day. And Barbie has the idea she has to go to L.A., right, which then becomes associated with an underworld reality. Um, and she's curious. And so in psychological interpretations of this phase, I've read astrologers posit that it's a curiosity with a, a hidden world of sexual mystery and taboo, or sometimes you're unwillingly abducted from the upper world of safety and security and normality, where you have to confront um, demons of fear or suffering, or you have interests that are not in alignment with uh, social norms, and it's, it's difficult to engage in nice, normal relationships. And you're forced to acknowledge your own uniqueness and go into that world that is often considered not only unknown, but a little bit taboo, a little bit frightening, because there's a call to connect with the deepest part of your soul, the truth of who you are on an inner level, the truth of what you desire and feel. And this is also part of this descent process that people are born from the time of the retrograde until the heliacal set, that these can be the emotions that they experience internally about their sexuality, their self-worth, their esteem, their ability to socialize with the norm of the population that is people born there is a periodic and recurring theme over their lives during the course of their lives or as we go through this sequence like every 18 months everyone has the opportunity to experience that during this phase of the cycle it's beginning the descent but you haven't stepped off the cliff into the abyss quite yet that happens at the heliacal set okay, okay. so so the, we can look at the yeah the diagram and you can comment. Yeah, so at this point we're at the heliacal set, 
And what that is astronomically is that when Venus, um, after Venus goes retrograde, at a certain point when it gets um, close to conjoining the sun, when Venus is retrograde, the yeah. sun is still moving direct. And at a certain point, they'll meet up at the same degree in the zodiac and they'll make a conjunction while Venus is retrograde and moving backwards. And when Venus gets too close to the sun, it goes from being visible in the night sky to all of a sudden being in invisible and disappearing. So this was sometimes referred to as being under the beams of the sun in later Hellenistic astrology, but it was associated with this period of, of invisibility, basically, mm -hmm. which then in the myth of Inanna seems to be associated with her um, actually going to and entering the underworld. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And some of those themes yeah. of like the underworld and what the underworld represents archetypally or symbolically seem to be very much connected with this part of the Venus retrograde, the very center yeah. point of the Venus retrograde, which are these themes that have to do with like a dark night of the soul or exploring mm -hmm. concepts of, of darkness, whatever that means in different ways or things that are hidden or private or internal. Yeah. And um, if we could go back to the diagram for a moment, um, just like to say, between the retrograde station and the heliacal set is a period of about 14 days for Venus. And in the myth, um, Inanna starts entering into the gates preceding the underworld. And um, her sister, Rishka Gal, when she realizes Inanna is coming, says, block all the gates. And when she arrives at each one, open them only a crack. And before you let her in, make her give up and set aside one of her symbols of power. And so at each one of the gates, she has to relinquish her headdress, her beads, her breastplate, her gown, her measuring rod. And in the sky, as she gets closer to the horizon, we see her become dimmer and dimmer and dimmer right before she disappears under the sun. And so um, that is the prelude. And again, if we personalize it for people born during this phase, um, I don't think we introduced the concept of what you're talking about with the natal connection with that. Yeah. Is that something you want to explain or go into? Well, I have been, I have been talking about that. Yeah. Uh, generally. I just don't know. So people, if we, that people can look up in their birth charts right. or they can use AstroSeek to look they up. Can, yes, they can use AstroSeek to look it up. And we can explain that in a little bit after we get through the story. We can just put up AstroSeek and show them how it works. I mean, maybe it would be better to explain all of that at that point then, or you're um, going to do every so. part of the cycle? I don't think so, it, because people forget what happens with each phase once you start giving. But, you know, I said the maximum height people are at their power of glory. They're fully supported by another. They're in their thing. Mm -hmm. And then as they, their curiosity brings them into making the descent. And as they get there, they find, oh, I was going to go on this grand adventure, but now, like, all of a sudden, I'm losing my power, the status I once had, the way I was viewed by society. I'm being like, all, I'm losing that entire identity. 
And there's the feeling of being exposed and undefended, vulnerable, misunderstood, not able to assert one's authority in the way that one had. And it can um, lead to great fear and uncomfortability. And on the positive level of that interpretation is also the possibility that if you divest yourself of all your posturing, your pretensions, your designer clothes, your hair color, your conventional attitudes, can you become totally transparent to another person at the deepest level of your being? And can you accept that from another as you start removing the outer adornments of one's persona? And so these are some of the issues that happen psychologically at this particular stage of the cycle. Then she disappears and she's in the underworld. The things I wanted to mention with the gates that I thought was really interesting yeah. about this story is that it actually says repeatedly in the myth that there's yeah. seven gates that Anana has to pass through in order to enter the underworld. Um, and I thought that was really interesting that there's seven gates. Um, and, you know, because in later Hellenistic yeah. astrology, there becomes a theme of after a person dies, that their soul um, ascends through the planetary spheres and it has to give up seven qualities from each of the planets mm -hmm. before it goes back to the yeah, stars. Right. And I can't help but think of this as like an earlier precursor to that, like 2000, 2000 years bef before Hellenistic mm -hmm. astrology. But it's interesting because it's, again, it's like dying and, and going to the underworld and then giving up these seven qualities. And I wonder if that was connected with the seven planets or, or what that was connected with. Right. There are a number of different theories floating out there by various astrologers. But um, explaining them is more than I'm able to do justice to them. So sure, letting people know that they can scout around and see um, what has been said. Yeah. So she gets to the underworld and um, her sister, Ereshkigal, who's the queen of the underworld, is obviously not at all happy that Inanna has come to her realm. And she says, okay, like she's now stripped naked, bring her low before entering the throne room where I'm sitting. And so Inanna from being like at the height of her power and glory decked out in all of her finery, like has nothing. And she's pushed on the ground and brought into Rishkagel's throne room. And Inanna makes her sister rise from the throne and then scrambles up and sits in the throne herself. Right. right. And this is seen like as a moment of total arrogance or there may be other interpretations of what her sister Rishkigel feels, but she gives her the eye of death, so to speak. The seven judges show no mercy and she is turned into a corpse and she's hung on a tree or a rod, like on a meat hook to rot. And 
I've heard it said, you know, Inanna, you come to the underworld, you have to die like everyone else. There is nothing special about you. And so there Inanna is. Um, and it can be the case that that exact conjunction when Venus is retrograde and within the sun, and this little interval lasts for about seven days total, that things that we've experienced in our romantic or sexual or other relationships feel like feel like death, like we want to die, like someone has killed us, that there's just such pain and suffering and feelings of degradation or betrayal and total isolation. It can be feel like just awful. And yet there is always at that inferior conjunction, it was always a time of initiation where one literally did go through a death and the seeds of renewal of being reborn as something else not defined by relationship with the other. When we get to the morning star, and we'll see how that unfolds. But we see like when Barbie goes to LA, right? It's like, no one thinks she's special. And then at a certain point, like she falls on the ground, like with this face first. <laughs> it's like she's dead, right? Okay. Like this is um, literally like an honest moment of death. Yeah. Do you remember? She yeah. <laughs> she becomes mortal and she has all yeah. of a sudden all these imperfections and everything's right. going wrong and everybody seems to hate her, treat her poorly. And then, yeah, at one point she just lies face first <laughs> on the grass right. and wants to call it quits right wants to get wants to give up right. and that's like the middle of the dark night of the right. soul exactly exactly which is connected here with yeah. the re the retrograde conjunction between the sun and venus yeah um meanwhile before inana um stepped into the underworld her serve her faithful servant um nishabur if i said that correctly she said listen if i don't come back in a couple of days like go get help and so when she doesn't return, her servant goes and, and treats the different gods. You know, Inanna has died in the underworld. You have to help her. And several of the gods say no. Like if she had the arrogance to think she could go to the underworld and, you know, that's what happens to people. And she got what she deserved. Um, but her father Enki realizes that if Inanna were to die, the crops would not grow on the earth. And the world would go and become parched and barren and the people would die. And here we have, you know, um, reflections of the later Demeter and Persephone story where he said, okay, we, you know, we have to do something about this. We can't allow the world to, to die. So he sends um, the water and food of life. And um, in the later Akkadian version of the story, mm -hmm. They really emphasize that even more in the story of Ishtar, which is like the later Akkadian version of Inanna. Mm -hmm. um, they emphasize that like all procreation on the earth stops when Inanna is in the underworld yes. and not just like animals, but also like humans and plants and everything mm -hmm. else um, stop basically like having sex or stop growing and it leads to like the world starting to to die basically exactly yeah so yeah. that becomes that's the you know reoccurring theme throughout so many world mythologies of 
of this point in the cycle. Yeah. Well, and it also yeah. it very directly connects Venus in with like procreation and everything directly yeah. connected with it in terms of right. the astrological meaning at this early stage. Exactly. Okay. Um, so she is allowed to be, she's allowed to be revived. She is allowed to be released, but only on the condition that someone else takes her place. That's the deal that they make. And so after, let's look at the diagram again. After seven days in the invisible realm with Venus conjunct the sun, she then makes her heliacal morning rise in the eastern sky early in the morning. Okay, we last saw her on the western sky in the evening, but now she shows up on the other side of the sky first thing in the morning. And initially, as she rises, she visually appears very faint. She's not very bright yet. Um, she's still like barely coming out of the rays of the sun. And often there may be a reddish cast or glow to her. And in the myth, they say that she returns. She's battered. She's bloody. She's weak. But hey, like she's survived and she has been reborn. And so it's that after being in a cataclysmic trauma where you thought you had, somehow you were dead for sure, you find out that by some miracle you're survived and you're crawling out of the rubble, you're crawling out of the pit in which you had fell. Right. And, and astronomically at this point, so this mm -hmm. is after the retrograde conjunction with the sun and that period of invisibility, suddenly Venus, which had been not visible in the night sky at all for like mm -hmm. several days, suddenly it becomes visible again. But at this point, she's switched sides and she's no longer visible in the evening. Yeah. But instead, all of a sudden, she starts becoming visible in the mornings yeah. right before sunrise. And so she's suddenly almost like after descending into the underworld on the heliacal mm -hmm. evening set side, she emerges um, in the morning as a morning star right before the sun. Yeah. Um, and this is connected with this emergence of her from the underworld in the myth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what one might experience um, psychologically is, hey, I must be stronger than I thought, like I made it, right? I survived. And there, there's this newfound first feelings of self-esteem that come from the realization of survival. Sometimes, you know, you've been really ill and you think every you think you're gonna die, everyone thinks you've died, but somehow you squeak through and you're not well yet, but you're well enough to know that you're gonna get better. And the feeling of um just joy and relief that suffuses you and confidence in your own ability to um, get through what seem to be unfeasible, that that has been inculcated within one. 
And so as she moves from her heliacal rise, then 14 days later, about, she turns direct in motion. And now she feels strong enough to start racing back to her husband, Demutsi, and letting him know, hey, like, I'm okay. Like, um, you know, th this is great. I'm coming back to be with you. And as she starts that journey, the um, demons of the underworld who've been charged with finding her replacement um, are asking Inanna, hey, how about your servant? Um, can we take her to the underworld? No, 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 she's my faithful servant. Hey, can we take this other person that's with you to the underworld? No, 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 I, I need them. And right. she keeps uh, uh, preserving the lives of those who have been loyal and supportive of her. Because part then, of the, the deal is that she can leave the underworld, but she has to find right. a, replace, a replacement. Yes, yes. And then she finally discovers her husband, Demutsi, and he is having a grand old time, so to speak. He's uh, sitting on her throne. He's lavishly clothed. He has all these slave girls entertaining him. It seems not only has he not missed her, but he didn't do anything to try and find her or save her and that he has taken over her position of power. So we might like reflect back to the Barbie movie for a moment here, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> of when Barbie returns to Barbie land and finds Ken. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the most striking parallels to me between the myth of Inanna yeah. and, and what happened in the Barbie movie is Barbie comes back from the real world. She gets back into Barbie land, yeah. but all of a sudden she finds out that Ken in her absence has taken over her kingdom and has completely remade it in his own like hyper masculine um uh, patriarchal image basically mm -hmm. um and her finding him on her throne having taken over her kingdom um is just like an incredibly striking parallel with right. this 4000 year old myth right and all of her you know barbie emanations now groveling <laughs> serving Ken and his buddies. Yeah. Let me um, show that paragraph from the yeah. myth. Um, so it says, the demons followed her to the great apple tree in the plain of Kaluba. And, and that, just as a side, is another interesting thing about the Anana myth is that uh, earlier precursor to the myth is this whole story about a tree that is planted and about this serpent that's like associated with the tree which is just like very clearly a much earlier parallel to the story in the Bible about like there being the Garden of Eden and a tree with a snake in it. Um, I, I was really just struck by that and struck by how a lot of these earlier Mesopotamian stories mm -hmm. end up influencing and showing up in different yeah. ways in the later in the Bible. Yeah. Um, all right. So she, they follow her to the great apple tree in the plain yeah. of Kaluba. And it says, there was Demutsi, clothed in a magnificent garment and seated magnificently on a throne, which is just really funny if you just think about like Ken when she gets back is like dressed in this like fur coat, right. looking extravagant and, and ridiculous. And it, it goes on and says, the demon seized him there by his thighs. The seven of them poured the milk from his churns. The seven of them shook their heads they would not let the shepherd play the pipe and flute before her 
And then it says, Anana, she looked at him. It was the look of death. She spoke to him. It was the speech of, of anger. She shouted at him. It was the shout of heavy guilt. How much longer? Take him away. Holy Anana gave Demutsi the shepherd into their hands. So this is what happens in the story when she gets back yeah. is she sees him on her throne and she's angry at him. Right. So, you know, I might ask some of our listeners if they've encountered a situation in their life where they're rushing back to be reunited with their beloved after having survived an ordeal and um, they find themselves totally abandoned and betrayed. There may be a flash of rage and anger, vengeance that overtakes them. And, you know, Inanna says to the demons, take him away. And so <clears throat> he's banished. Uh, and there are variations in the story here um, based on the different versions. But I just might want to stop a moment and talk for a moment about the some of the qualities, the characteristics of Venus direct as a morning star. So at this point, we're at the direct station. Where the, the direct station is, we're moving toward the maximum elongation. And so she starts moving forward at the direct station. But when she comes into her full power as the goddess of battle and war and assertiveness and taking control of the situation, I would guess that she would be closer to her maximum elongation because then she's highest in the sky and that there's some correlation between being higher in the sky and being more at the height of one's power. Okay. Can I show but, that what that looks like in the in a chart? Yeah. Okay. So because this is important to relay this astronomically back to what people see in charts. Mm -hmm. So here's back again, the day the Barbie movie was released, July 21st, and we see Venus as an evening star because the sun is at the descendant and it is just set at night. And then Venus comes out as a bright star just after sunset and will be um, around the descendant and around the seventh house for a period of time before Venus herself sets um, in the evening and becomes invisible. So if we move the chart forward, so I'm going to advance the chart until we see in this Venus retrograde, the sun moving through Leo, Venus stations retrograde and begins moving backwards in Leo. She eventually gets close to the sun and enters the under the beams and enters the underworld where the middle point of the retrograde cycle when Venus is exactly in the underworld is the conjunction with the sun, which in this instance occurs at 20 degrees of Leo on August 12th. And then what happens is after that conjunction, she switches sides with the sun astronomically. And then eventually um, she stops, she's not appearing anymore in the evening, but instead just before sunrise, um, later in August, we'll see Venus appear as a morning star where she'll rise up over the ascendant or over the eastern horizon um, just a little bit before sunrise in the morning. 
as a bright star. And then the point of the the point that we're at now in the story is Venus stationing direct eventually. She'll station direct at 12 degrees of yeah. Leo. And then eventually she'll get even more distance from the sun at her maximum elongation. And that's the point you're talking about right yeah. now, where she's as distant from the sun as she can get yeah. and as bright as bright as she can right. get as a morning star. Right. So, and she spans 180 days as a morning star. And one might say that this is the time when in Samaria, Venus was the goddess of battle and war. And she's fully in charge of her life. She has power as an autonomous individual rather than power that is supported by another. And in some of the, um, I was reading late last night, a morning hymn to Inanna, it shows her as um, dispensing justice. And every day the people would come to her with their concerns and to the wicked, she would punish them. And to those who, would, who were righteous, she would give them blessings. And so she is in a position of meeting out justice um, to both the worthy and the unworthy. And that's the part of the um, autonomous, independent, self-contained um, qualities that are associated with um, Venus at her greater distances from the sun direct in motion. Okay. So, and part of it, just to expand on that yeah. or clarify, is just that um, in ancient, like in Hellenistic astrology and later tradition, they made this distinction between an evening star being supposedly more feminine mm -hmm. versus a morning star, Venus being more masculine. Right. And what we're saying is that we may see traces of that in the earlier Mesopotamian tradition where they're treating Venus as sometimes having these qualities of being like a goddess of like love and procreation and things like that, which may be connected with the evening star phase. But then there's these other treatments of Venus of being a goddess of like war and justice that may be more connected with the morning mm -hmm. star phase. Yeah. Yeah, the sun was uh, was mythologically a god who oversaw oaths and ensured justice. Um, and so there's definitely those qualities of Venus here. Uh, and a uh, feminine archetype is the Amazon that has been linked not only to Venus and Aries, but Venus is a morning star. We could put that archetype there. Yeah, I kind of, in a, to put it in like Barbie terms, yeah. it seems like the um evening star phase is like the standard barbie or the margot Ro mm -hmm. robbie beginning of the movie barbie right. but um i saw this image recently of like a doll that was a barbie but it was like put by an artist in the form of the hindu goddess kali right which is like <laughs> this warrior goddess who's oh, yeah. holding like um a sword and like a severed head and stuff right. like that and that's right. more the morning star phase Definitely of, of Venus. With his head. <laughs> right. And, you know, one may 
also be um, have activism impulses and actions toward um, social activism and um, refusing to tolerate um, abusive relationships um, on you know on multiple levels and taking a, a stand for that may also be qualities that are associated with this phase of um, mornings of Inanna, morning star Venus. Okay. Okay. Then what happens as, so Venus now starts the, from her maximum elongation at eight, she starts getting lower and lower in the sky. And as she approaches nine here, at about 10 degrees distant from the sun, she sets beneath the horizon. And she stays invisible this time for about 80 days. At the retrograde invisibility, it was seven days from heliacal evening set to heliacal morning rise. Now it's um, 80 days. And during that time period, she starts but getting lonely she slowly has a change of heart well maybe he wasn't such a jerk after all maybe there were some good qualities about him i'm sort of like sad i'm all by myself like so what i did all this stuff i'm i'm lonely and i don't have anyone to sleep with or eat with or do things with or talk to and it's that period of regret following sometimes the breakup of re relationship, like initially, like, you know, I'm done with it, like get out of here. And for a while, you're really strong um, in your newfound freedom and autonomy. And then there comes a time when you start getting kind of weepy and like sad and distressed over the isolation you find yourself in. And so this starts a longer period of mourning for her lost love. Um, it's accompanied by Demutsi's sister um, who joins her. And sometimes this is called lamentations um, that go in this stage. And then they are able to, um, they get the help of a fly who tells them where Demutsi is. And Inanna decrees that, okay, there's a new deal. And... <clears throat> Demutsi's sister, Gesthema, has to spend half the year in the underworld and take his place. And the other half, he can come back to the under, upper world and be my mate. And so this transition back to the diagram for a, mo a brief moment, if we can look at it, is at the end of the superior conjunction period. Um, to the evening star rise where um, Demutsi comes back, Venus reappears as the evening star goddess of love. They are reunited and then they celebrate the sacred marriage and the cycle begins again. And um, Chris, you might, you know, uh, listen on the end, like Chris and Barbie, you know, has the fight with Ken and has him stay away but in the end she says well 
you know, we can still be sort of friends and we can still, you know, I don't have to have girls night every night, <laughs> right? You know, there can be some Ken nights. Uh, and so there is that re rapprochement to relationship and making space once again for um, Ken to be part of her life. Um, and in a similar way for Inanna with Demutsi. Yeah, that's perfect. And um, astronomically, there's a really interesting piece here. Yeah. Um, and I think that's connected also in terms of some of the relationship stuff, because like people have been asking recently, I saw this news article, like, why are there all these breakups that are happening this summer of all these different celebrities, so that even like the news is picking up on it during the retrograde? And I think part of it has to do with when Venus is retrograde, um, the sun and, and Venus, when they conjoin at the inferior conjunction, they're actually moving in opposite directions. So that conjunction comes and goes relatively quickly. And there's like this wrenching motion where they pass in completely opposite directions very fast. And that's almost like symbolically or astronomically is, is symbolically like a breakup where two people are sort of being ripped apart. Whereas when Venus and the sun can join, when Venus is direct, it's actually more of this motion of two planets coming together and running forward in the zodiac and occupying the same space, but doing it in tandem for a period of time, which is kind of what a relationship is. If you think about it in time, it's two people mm -hmm. occupying the same space in time and deciding to move forward in, un in unison at the same time for a period of their lives. And that's kind of like the superior conjunction. And there's something there that's sort of embedded in this astronomically that I think may explain some of the relationship stuff. And it also may connect with yeah. things like the sacred marriage at the beginning of Anana's story and different things like that. Right, right. That's brilliant. It's, thank you for that, those insights. And just, you know, just to reemphasize for people, if you have Venus conjunct the sun and Venus is retrograde, it will always be at the inferior conjunction. And if you have Venus conjunct the sun, Venus is direct, it will always be at the superior conjunction. So that's a really easy way for you to tell which sun-Venus um, conjunction you have, what, what part of the cycle it is. Right. Yeah. So that is basically the connection. Mm -hmm. That's both the story of Anana. And that's the story of how it the the story itself is seems to be connected with the Venus retrograde cycle, um, and then also the story of how it weirdly kind of connects with the Barbie movie, which for some reason and that and that was actually a debate I was having with Nick Dagan yeah. Best is like, did Greta Gerwig who wrote the script did she have the myth of Anana in mind when writing this? And he thought the answer was yes because it's a pretty long or well-known story um in like historically mm -hmm. but i keep watching interviews with greta gerwig and people keep asking her questions about whether such and such was a reference to something and while that obviously was a very deeply referential movie in many respects especially referencing other yeah. films like 2001 a space odyssey at the beginning she often i've seen her respond to certain questions where people are making connections and saying no, I didn't actually make that connection, but that's still very interesting and, and is, you know, um, compelling or striking, mm -hmm. even though I didn't do that deliberately. 
and I wouldn't be surprised. It could kind of go either way with this, yeah. but it's not a it's not a given that she did do it deliberately because that's one of the things about archetypes is they kind of bubble up in culture right. repeatedly in different ways because they are archetypes and they exist exactly. out there as these sort of like transcendent notions that blend into our reality sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right, because she was born under a Venus retrograde, there may be a part of her own Venus nature that is acutely aware and sensitive of this Venus Inanna archetypal drama, whether or not she knows that externally or not, she has on an inner um, level of psyche, she is familiar with that. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And so with an archetype, so what is the premise? Like I always ask this question to different astrologers, but they have a hard time coming up with something on the spot, but just you know, what is an archetype? It's like a transcendent idea that um, comes forth in different ways into reality and culture at different periods. But but because it exists out there as a pattern, it's something that does just show up in different cultures independently, not through direct influence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, generally, yes. But one of the ways I've understood it, probably using a Jungian definition is that in the same way that every human has certain um, external features in common, we have two eyes, two ears, like one mouth, um, 10 fingers. There are also internal structures in the mind that are common to all individuals. And these like, almost like um, molds in which you like cast bronze things in or cast clay things in there, these molds that exist in mental structures and that the contents inside these forms um, are myths and dreams and symbols and so on. And so while everyone has the potentiality of all of the general forms, which particular ones arise in the course of a person's life um, is something unique to each person. And this is where astrology, mythic astrology, you know, plays into this in my experience that if you have a mythic deity like Venus at a prominent position when you were born, conjunct your sun or moon or on one of the angles, then of the whole collective of possibilities that are potentially there through you, that is the particular one that individualizes in your lifetime, in your lived experiences. Um, And so that's one of the ways I see the connection between the potentiality of all archetypes that are common to all beings and the particular ones that each person um, get expressed in a particular life because we can't do all things that are possible all at once for every person and then just in um and that's like why certain plays um the greek dramatists were so powerful because they spoke to some of the basic scripts of the human condition and in the same way that a theater group you'll have multiple theater groups they all take the same play but they each give it their own flavor 
flavor of costuming and setting and what they emphasize and how they bring it forth in interpretation. Likewise, we have these different dramas that are available to humans through which to live our lives and develop some consciousness, but we each give them our own particular flair and details. Right. Yeah. Sort of like one of my favorite examples is kind of like how, um, you know, you have Shakespeare's version of like Romeo and Juliet yeah. as a play, but then in what was it, it was like 1986, you have that movie that was like, it was like Baz Luhrmann or somebody did like a modern Sh version. Shakespeare in love. Well, I was or, thinking of or, Romeo yeah. and Juliet, yeah. the one with oh, um, Romeo and Juliet, yeah. mm -hmm. the one with like Leonardo DiCaprio mm -hmm. and Claire Danes, where like instead of swords, the different um, gangs had like guns, but like it yeah. still work. It still works archetypally right. and ends up being the same yeah. thing, but it's just in a different presentation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's things like that. And there's also that same concept happens in different cultures where for some reason, different cultures keeps telling different versions of the same, the same story. Right. Because sometimes it, independently. Right. Because that story is a, a form that is common to all humans everywhere at all time, during all time. Right. And part of the, by extension, and it's not just because I'm hearing somebody right now in the back of my head saying, well, that's because they heard the story from another. But yeah. part of our premise here is that even if somebody was like on a desert island, isolated somewhere, and they created a new civilization there, some of these archetypes and some right. of these dynamics of archetypal stories would still arise right. independently exactly. there, exactly. even if they hadn't heard them from another right. culture, because these are things that are somehow inherent in human culture or in the universe that will arise organically on their own precisely i mean and that's one way of making sense of what are archetypes and i think yeah. it's, a good, it's a good explanation there might be others but i think this is a good one that holds together yeah and so in astrology though one of its main attractions for mm -hmm. us for astrologers is that it becomes a means of accessing the archetypal realm and seeing when different archetypes are operating mm -hmm. and being able to identify them both yeah. in natal charts as well as in events and event charts mm -hmm. that's really cool yeah so um there was one other thing that came up that was a really close parallel with the Barbie movie that I thought was interesting. And one of the things that was talked about in a lot of the literature I was reading about Anana and her counterpart in the Akkadian tradition, which is the goddess Ishtar, um, is that there were a lot of like contradictory meanings for Anana and Ishtar, where they would signify one thing, but they would also signify it's opposite sometimes mm -hmm. so that there were a lot of like almost like contradictions that were inherent in the goddess. Um, one of them that we've mentioned repeatedly is like on the one hand, uh, Anana was the goddess of love, but on the other hand, Anana was also a goddess of war. Um, so that you have that like evening star and morning star side to her. Do you remember what some of the other, um, like sort of contradictory meanings or indications of Anana were? Um, that I don't, but I, what I did want to point, what I had said to you earlier was that there were, um, there was a statue or relief sculpture of Inanna Ishtar that they called the bearded Ishtar. 
And there was the goddess with her breast depicted, but she also had a beard. And this is sort of the integration of the male-female as dual aspects within one entity and sort of holds the goddess of love and the goddess of war with the um there's a word here that I don't know what the uh, word is of showing both qual both qualities simultaneously. Yeah, well, that and that was a really interesting yeah. one. Um, that there was an association with Anana. It seemed like in the Mesopotamian tradition of mm -hmm. associations with transgressing gender norms. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, and in one passage talking about like men becoming women and women becoming men. Um. In one article I was reading, they talked about celebrations of the goddess involved transgendered and transvestite cultic personnel. And um, in another paragraph, it talks about some androgynous aspects of mm -hmm. Inanna, and it says the carnival-esque carnival festivals of the goddess were associations when reversals of age, species, okay. status, and sex all came into play when social rules were in abeyance and were possible times of institutionalized license. Mm -hmm. um, Is that like the Saturnalia? In kind Roman of, times? yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's right. the same idea. So yeah. I found this amazing um, paragraph where this author sums it up, and I'm going to read that now. Okay. It was by um, a Mesopotamian scholar named jo Joan Goodnick Weston Holtz, in an article or a chapter she wrote in a book titled The Babylonian World, and the, the chapter title was Anana and Ishtar in the Babylonian World. So she says, this is basically her concluding paragraph, and I found it really striking. She says, we have traced the development of the conception of Sumerian Anana and her Akkadian counterpart Ishtar from their first appearance in the cuneiform records, and we've examined the diverse elements of the personality of the goddess. We have seen that her most archaic and basic aspect of astral dimorphism is the source of the ambiguities and contradictions in her character, including her apparent androgyny. In like manner, she held dominion over all polarity of behaviors from capricious to caring and represented both order and disorder, structure and anti-structure. Her bipolarity was founded on a natural phenomenon. The planet Venus appears twice in its course, once in the east and once in the west as morning and evening star. Her very mutability may have intrigued the ancient Mesopotamians and led to the conception of Anana Ishtar as the one and only divine entity able to embody such opposing aspects. And I thought that was really striking mm -hmm. because that's the conclusion to this mm -hmm. article about Anana. But if you think back to the Barbie movie, the culmination of the Barbie movie was um, this dialogue or this speech by um, the figure who played the the mother in the movie about the tensions that women constantly had to reconcile of reconciling these completely dueling opposite right. things that they were expected to do in right. society. I remember that now. Mm -hmm. And it was really like this crucial yeah. sort of culminating moment about 
um, how hard that is, but how women constantly have to like um, have one foot in both worlds. And that's just a huge additional parallel here that I think was coming through in the archetype of Anana um, that appeared in the Barbie movie at another moment that's worth worth sort of thinking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. I wish I could remember. That was a very long speech. And um, then as they tried to get all of the women to fight back and get their power back, parts of that speech were reiterated to women who are still in the subservient role to get them to say, hey, wake up. You don't have to um, reminding them. Yeah, I think I just found it. Do you mind if I read it real quick? No, that would be good. I would love to have it refreshed. And it went on for a number of sentences, but it was really encapsulated the condition of being a woman in society. Yeah. So, and the the actress's name was America Ferreira, who played mm-hmm. G- Gloria in the movie. So, the title of this article I found it on what is it, Town and Country Mag, titled "Read America Ferreira's Powerful Monologue in Barbie." Um, so, here it says it says in, in the in the movie it says it is literally impossible to be a woman. You are you are so beautiful and so smart, and it kills me that you don't think you're good enough. Like we have to always be extraordinary, but somehow we're always doing it wrong. You have to be thin, but not too thin. And you can't, and you can never say you want to be thin. You have to say you want to be healthy, but you also have to be thin, but you have to have money, but you can't ask for money because that's crass. You have to be a boss, but you can't be mean. You have to lead, but you can't squash other people's ideas. You're supposed to be to love being a mother, but don't talk about your kids all of the damn time. You have to be a career woman, but also be looking out for other people. You have to answer for men's bad behavior, which is insane. But if you point that out, you're accused of complaining. You're supposed to stay pretty for men, but not so pretty that you tempt them too much or that you threaten other women because you're supposed to be a part of the sisterhood but always stand out and always be grateful, but never forget that the system is rigged. So find a way to acknowledge that, but also always be grateful. You have to never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish, never fall down, never fail, never show fear, never get out of line. It's too hard. It's too contradictory and nobody gives you a medal or says thank you. And it turns out in fact that not only are you doing everything wrong, but also everything is your fault. I'm just so tired of watching myself and every single other woman tie herself into knots so that people will like us. And if all of that is also true for a doll just representing women, then I don't even know. So that's it. And obviously like me reading as a man does not have the same power that it had in the movie. So I apologize for that in ahead of time, but at least I was really struck by that being in some ways the culmination and of the movie or one of the culminations right. or like many as many, we get to that was, we move toward that point yes yeah and just that this other um mesopotamian scholar that that's literally the main thing that she focused on in anana yeah. and how she concluded her article talking about the contradictions of the goddess mm-hmm. and yeah and, and that we see some of this tied in with the basic astronomical difference of that morning star versus mm-hmm. evening star phase of venus and her in that trying to reconcile yeah. those two opposing realms Right. And always like 
the integration of opposites, you know, dark and light, the yin and the yang, and the wholeness. And so Inanna represents the wholeness and within her contains the polarities that are continually in flux and moving back and forth. And we see that in her cycle going up and coming down, going up and coming down, appearing in the east, appearing in the west. And <laughs> of, of Venus, it, I meant to say that we see those dualities embodied in the cycle itself. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, um, can, we, can we just say like a, a word or two about um, Barbie and feminism? Sure. That was like one of the things that uh, struck me when I was watching the movie. Okay. And I was probably 13 when Barbie came out. So I wasn't nine and 10 playing with Barbies, but I did play with them being older with younger children. So I had the Barbie experience of dressing the dolls up and parading them about with uh, younger children that I was caring for and being a mother of. Right, because you kind and of like like Barbie came out in fifty nine. Fifty nine, and, then... and I, I was I was thirteen then, so I was just like. And then also during the course of like the early to mid nineteen sixties, like second wave feminism okay. developed at that point. Yeah, right. So I was going to say before I saw the movie, when I thought of Barbie, I said, "Oh, the sexual objectification of women," right, and that was sort of like. A dismissive attitude I had toward the whole thing, even though I played with them with um with children. And then in the course of the movie, they say, but wait a second, like Barbie sparked feminism. And the movie started out with all the little girls playing on the beach with their baby dolls. Right. And I remember like, you know, being seven and having like tiny tears, like, you know and feeding it with a bottle and then squeezing out and changing diapers. And I would do that for hours at a time. And so the little girls, the models they were given of what they could be was as mothers. And this was all the role modeling, the plane that was culturally permissible and was the consensus. And then when they said in the movie, but hey, we gave like, you know, Barbie the president and Barbie the lawyer and Barbie the athlete and, you know, Barbie the doctor. And Barbie presented young girls with multiple different roles that they could aspire to. And Barbie herself, like, didn't want to be a mother and have children because she wanted to develop her own identity and career. And so Barbie came out in 1959 in the early 60s was the very first beginnings of feminism. By 1963, Betty Friedan had published The Feminine Mystique. And you know, the question is, is this all there is for women of being a homemaker? And so it was almost as if on some level, Barbie was a foreshadowing of what would then quickly spark into a raging women's consciousness, liberation, feminist movement. And then Barbie ended. So Barbie began with the little girls playing with 
baby dolls. It Barbie's last line was, I'm going to see my gynecologist. And as I began to think about that, another groundbreaking book that came out in the um, beginnings of feminism was Our Bodies, Ourselves. And that has to do with women's reproductive health. And Barbie, who like came into LA and announced that she didn't have a vagina, at the end of the movie, she's going to a gynecologist to have an examination, apparently. And our bodies ourselves said, have you women ever looked at your vagina? And most women had never even dreamed of holding up a mirror and looking down there. And that marked like a major shift in women's like attitudes to their bodies and taking responsibility for their own health, especially reproductive health that had been given over into men. Um, and so I thought that those two feminist um, pieces of the Barbie movie was something I never in my mind would I have put that on Barbie until I saw it in the movie. And then my perspective that had been one way suddenly did a 180 degree flip where I began to see the opposite side or another point of view or holding those opposing views. And yeah. I'm curious about um, other women's um, responses and reactions to um, that possibility that beyond Barbie being presented in one way that it also is a foreshadowing of feminism. Yeah, I mean, that looking at the history, it seems like Barbie always had one foot in both worlds of on the one hand, having some good feminist ideals, and then on the other hand, having some ones that were maybe not that or were coming yeah. from a different place. And I was watching an interview with the director, Greta Gerwig, and she said, when asked if she grew up playing with Barbie, she said, well, my mom was kind of anti-Barbie. And so she says, when I you know, first was exposed to Barbie, I was exposed with the concept of Barbie, as well as the arguments against Barbie at the same yeah. time, so that it seems like she incorporated that into the movie, both yeah. the arguments for Barbie and, and the positive and, and sort of feminist attributes, yeah. but also some of the arguments against or the things that were more regressive or more um, patriarchal or what have you. And you made actually a really interesting point to me, which is I was reading a biography and it said that the founder, the creator of Barbie in 1959, she was partially trying to pattern Barbie after and imitate some of the like Hollywood actresses of the 1950s. And that was part of why Barbie looked the way that she looks. But then you made the point that, well, the most famous Hollywood actress in the 1950s that she would have been patterning after would have been Marilyn Monroe. Right. Um, and Marilyn Monroe, you pointed out, has was born with Leo rising with Neptune in the first house. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, Marilyn Monroe being, you know, statuesque with those beautiful long legs and the totally blonde and the high perky breasts. It was almost as if Barbie was modeled after Marilyn Monroe's body type. And she was the penultimate symbol of um, the, se the sex pod or the, se the sexual woman of the 1950s. So she was at, the, at her height. But then remember, we looked at the charts and we saw, we had the chart for Barbie's release that had nine Gemini rising. Um, right. And then we saw 
is it possible for you to get the Barbie chart, Marilyn's chart, and Margot's chart all up? Sure. Let me let's look at Marilyn's chart first and just explain well, well, it for the yeah, but we should have the Barbie chart. I think that goes first. First. Okay. Yeah. Let me pull that up. Um there it is. Barbie chart. And you actually, I didn't know there's a time, but you came up with a time for this, yeah, which is like yeah, it's 10 a.m. Yeah. Yeah, it's posted. That's when the toy, toy show opened, at which the doll was first premiered and shown. And so, it's on um, astro.com. So it's March 9th, 1959 at 10 a.m. in Manhattan, New York with right. Gemini rising. Right. And- so look at that nine Gemini rising. And we can go back to this chart, but I just want to point something out here. So now let's go to Marilyn's chart and look at her son at 10 Gemini. So Marilyn's son is conjunct the ascendant of Barbie. Wow. Okay. Right. And then let's look at Margot's, Margot Roby's chart. There it is. Can you see this? I can. Okay. And Margot's Venus is at 8 Gemini. So mm. there you have Barbie with like nine Gemini rising. Margot's Venus is at eight and Marilyn's sun is at 10. And they both connect in there of how you have Barbie, perhaps the image being based on Marilyn and then Margot who's portraying Barbie's of her chart being linked to Barbie's chart into Marilyn's chart. Like th- there's that threat triple intersection. Yeah, that's incredible. That's an yeah. incredible connection between them. Yeah. Um, and then and so I'm sure just... I, you know, I would love to see that expanded um into more discussion, more words by someone. Yeah. Well, and even just um, because I was looking for because it was so striking that Venus stationed retrograde at 28 leo like the day Mm -hmm. the barbie movie was released i was looking for the barbie uh, the the leo connections and was surprised that it wasn't as prominent in the actual barbie chart but then when you showed me Marilyn's chart which is like a time chart which has leo rising um i thought that was really interesting and striking and you know one of the things interesting about 1959 is Prior to 1959, all of the Venus retrogrades, they started in Virgo and they ended in Virgo. So Venus mm-hmm. would like station retrograde in late Virgo, and then it would station direct in early Virgo. But in 1959, that was the very first year where Venus stationed retrograde in Virgo, but it stationed direct at 29 degrees of Leo. So it was the first Venus retrograde that dipped into Leo mm-hmm. and then that was the summer that Barbie became popular yeah. and took off. And then, of course, that's the connection or the Leo connection where um, in 2023, Venus stationed retrograde at 28 Leo, activating that exact same degree from the summer that Barbie mm-hmm. became popular, right. which is also kind of close to Regulus. So there might be some kind of like Regulus right, right. connection as <laughs> <Right>. well. <laughs> yeah. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of Solar Fire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. 
You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code astropodcast15 to get a 15% discount. All right, so we're back from a break, and one section that we wanted to talk about yeah. was this: these myths surrounding Inanna go back to like 4000 BCE, maybe 3000 BCE, mm -hmm. and certainly some of the astrological connections may have already been in place by 2500 BCE or so. Um, but then there's another important figure in the history of astrology that's actually tied in with the Nana's myth and story, which is this woman, this priestess who lived around 2300 BCE named Inheduana. And she's really important because she's actually um, the first person in history that's recorded to have written poems and to written hymns and to sign her name to them as the author. Mm -hmm. So she's actually the earliest named writer in history, at least in terms of this tradition uh, in the cuneiform tradition and in terms of uh, other writing traditions west of there. Um, yeah, so she was in Heduana. And what else do we know about her? So she was a priestess. Mm -hmm. She was the daughter of King Sargon. So she was a princess. She was the daughter of the king of the land. And he was the king of the um, Akkadians who had superseded the Sumerians. And she was a priestess. Let's talk about and, that Akkadian part more. Because mm -hmm. that's actually, it, put it puts it as a really important turning point in the history. Right, 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 a really important transition from the Sumerian script to the Akkadian script. Right, where it's like up to this point, the Sumerian um, people were occupying roughly modern day Iraq. And it was the Sumerian people who had this goddess, Anana, and referred to Venus as mm -hmm. Anana mm -hmm. and had stories about like the descent of Anana yeah. and other things like that. But then all of a sudden, at this point, around 2300 BCE, there's this new king that comes along from the Akkadian empire or he sets mm -hmm. up the Akkadian empire right. and Akkadian Akkadian was a specific language yeah. and that creates this new dynasty and this turning point where yeah. it goes from the Sumerian kingdom to the Akkadian kingdom and right in the middle of this is his daughter at the time mm -hmm. the king the king's daughter right and we know she says she was a princess she was a priestess of Inanna and she wrote, um, but we know for sure the a poem called the um, Exaltation of Inanna. And another poem that we know for sure that she wrote was Temple Hymns to Inanna. And there is some suggestion that she was the person who translated the Sumerian version of the descent of Inanna into Akkadian. Um, so those are, uh, and, and for our interests, what's really important was that she was an astronomer and <clears throat> has an early connection with astrology as well. Right, and this is something that was first pointed out by Ali A. Alumi earlier this year mm -hmm. in a lecture on his Patreon, where he 
suggested that she was an overlooked figure that may have been the earliest reference to a woman astrologer in history um, because of, of a possible connection with astronomy and astrology through mm -hmm. a device that she is said to, to mention in one of her poems. Right, which is the, the measuring uh, measuring line. So let me just like take it back a few steps that the main architectural building of ancient, ancient Mesopotamia was the ziggurat. And those are similar to the pyramid-like figures that we've seen in Egypt and also in the um, Mayan and certain uh, South, Central and South American cultures. And the, <clears throat> the ziggurat was both um, the temple for the religious rites to take place. It was also the storehouse for the grain that was grown and stored and then would be doled out over the course of the year to the members of the city, as well as the excess grain then traded for economic purposes. And at the very top of the ziggurat was the astronomical observatories where the astrologer priests would go up and look at the stars and the planets. And those were used for making the correlation between the appearance and the rising and setting of stars and planets and their correlations to what happened on Earth. And somewhere along the line, I heard that there were seven layers to the ziggurats, which may have represented the seven planets. But I'd have to go back into those archaeostronomy papers to know for sure. So we have the um, tradition that astronomical observations took place from the same building as the um, religious rites and temple rites took place. And that also the temples were used for other divinatory purposes, one being that of dreams, which is the oldest and most basic form of divination. And the king would go into the temple to sleep and request a dream from the gods. And um, when he had a dream in the temple with a request, that was considered a God-given divination. So what's recorded um, with uh, um, what they call the, the dream of Gudea, who was a, a king around 2100 BCE, was that he was told in his dream to build a temple and he saw a woman raising a building plot and she studied a clay tablet on which were set down the constellations and that at the goddess Nancy's shrine Gudea was told that the woman was the goddess Nisaba and she was studying a tablet of the stars to build a temple in accordance with the stars and so one of the ways that those happened was that there are these measuring rods and cords and that the um, lines of the astronomical configurations between stars uh, and their angles were then through these cords like sort of brought down to the earth and laid out as the lines to build temples in accordance with the stars. So in the research about 
um, and hey, Duana, um, there's an early cuneiform tablet associated with her where it's written that the true woman who possesses exceeding wisdom, she consults a tablet of lapis lazuli. She gives advice to all the lands. She measures off the heavens. She places the measuring cords on the earth. And so this is suggestive that not only was um, Enhe Duana a princess, a priestess, she was also an astronomer involved with building temples. But when Inanna went to the underworld, one of her symbols of power was the measuring rod and the measuring cord. And so this shows a continuity of astronomical um, uh, skill running from the goddess Ignana through one of her priestesses and Heiduana. And that was also, that concept was in uh, divine or divinatory dreams given to kings. And that sort of links the um, astronomy that was being practiced at that time. In this case, it's not only through a female lineage, but definitely a female lineage was one of those with the goddess and her priestess. Yeah, that seems really important. And there was some shift that was happening here between the Sumerian and Akkadian empires mm -hmm. that I've seen like traces of references to, but I don't know enough about where they almost seem to talk about this being a shift towards more of a patriarchal culture possibly, or where maybe goddesses mm -hmm. like Inanna were um, at a higher level in the earlier Sumerian yes. culture. Do you know, like, is that true or is that being overplayed? I don't really know. Okay, well, this is what I can, like, uh, this is what I can say. Um, one of the texts about Inanna was called Inanna and the Hulupu tree. And you mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, but it could bear repeating that just like the Greek myths, different authors have different fragments of the story. And it's at some later point where collators take together the different fragments and put them, string them together in a narrative. And then we have like the narrative takes place, but originally the narrative may have existed in the oral telling but to the extent it's written down is questionable. So anyway. But as separate stories, you mean? That sep separate stories, right. So in Inanna and the Halupu tree, which is a different set of cuneiform tablets, Inanna is sitting in her garden. And in the garden, in the center of the garden is a tree. And at the top of the tree lives the zoo bird with its young. At the base of the tree, the serpent is coiled around it. And in the center of the tree, the dark maid Lilith lives. And then Gilgamesh, the Babylonian hero, marches into Inanna's garden. He takes his ax and he cuts down the tree 
the zoo bird flees, the serpent is flees, in Lilith flees to the desert where she's exiled, and Gilgamesh takes the trunk of the tree and builds the, his bed for Inanna out of it. And so one could read into that that Inanna is ruling in her garden with all of the ancient goddess symbols were the bird and snake goddesses, the birds on their heads, the snakes coiled around them, um, the goddess nursing snakes at their breasts, um, that this was a very prominent uh, form, motif in early Sumerian art. And Gilgamesh, who represents the Babylonians who superseded the Akkadians, who had in turn superseded the Sumerians, comes and he chops down Inanna's tree, and he then takes over power. So that can be one interpretation of a shift from a predominantly goddess-centered culture to one of the diminution of the goddess to more of a patriarchal-centered culture. And there can be other interpretations, but that's one of them that um, some people who have put forth that theory will look to as being primary source evidence. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking, I was thinking more of just some traces of scholars talking about how the goddess Inanna was treated differently, apparently in the Sumerian culture versus in the Akkadian culture mm -hmm. in different, sometimes subtle ways, yeah. um, but it's possibly suggestive of, of something. Yeah, um, Gil Gilgamesh becoming the new hero is definitely the sign of that, what that something else was, okay, as it's right. recorded in myth. So, because in the earlier, in the Sumerian version, it's like Inanna wants to build out of the tree her bridal bed because she mm -hmm. wants to get married and, and become a woman and um, do the things necessary for yeah. that with the bed and she asks different gods to do it and they won't so she she finds Gilgamesh who's like a low, low level character and then he does what she wants and then it's really her story but elsewhere it becomes Gilgamesh's story yeah yeah it's in the preamble to the epic of Gilgamesh is where this story is now put, whether that's where it was when they uncovered the tablets, I don't know, or if that's where scholars decided to put that story, was this to the preamble of Gilgamesh. But um, Gilgamesh is um, some centuries later than the Sumerians where Inanna was originally elevated, then Inanna became melded with the Babylonian Ishtar, even though they had different qualities, they were sort of smashed together and Ishtar was then associated with Venus. And then as the culture moved north to the Assyrians and Syria, that goddess of love associated with that planet was Astarte um, that was worshiped in Phoenicia, Canaan, northern Syria that then became linked with Aphrodite as the Phoenician culture was brought to Crete and the uh, coast 
port cities of Greece so that there's a continuous line between Inanna, Ishtar, Inanna and Samaria, Ishtar and Babylonia, Astarte in Syria with the Assyrians, and Aphrodite in Canaan and Phoenicia as she arrives, particularly in Corinth in Greece, and then Cyprus as well. Um, and each one of these goddesses was the goddess of love, and that was associated with the planet that we call Venus. Okay, that's a really important point because that brings up the point that in the Greek astrological tradition, they didn't start apparently associating the goddess Aphrodite, which existed for a long time. They didn't start calling the planet Venus Aphrodite until about 400 BCE, um, whereas there was this very long tradition in Mesopotamia prior to that that associated the goddess um, Anana with the planet Venus that goes mm -hmm. back to like 2000, 3000 BCE, mm -hmm. long before the Greek tradition. And then what happened in 400 BCE around the time of, of Plato yeah. is that some unknown Greek authors deliberately tried to pick specific gods in the Greek pantheon in order to associate those gods with the Mesopotamian gods yeah. that the planets were named after. Right. And and so there was this deliberate attempt to link those two traditions, mm -hmm. but it meant that it was based on or is predicated on the much earlier Mesopotamian oh, tradition. Yeah. Absolutely. And again, some of the stories are similar, like the planet that the Greeks called the Star of Hermes, which we know is Mercury, was associated with the um, Mesopotamian god Sin, who was, um, that's in um, Nabu, who is the god of scribes. Okay, so we have Mercury writing, Nabu being the scribal tradition. It's right. like, oh yeah, we have a god that's associated with letters and numbers and writing and communication. And the Babylonian god Marduk, who is the king of the gods, who had a council of gods, who slayed the dragon Tiamat, the, who wielded the thunderbolt, the Greeks said, oh yeah, we've got one of those. <laughs> That's Zeus. We'll call that the star, you know, the star of Zeus, Jupiter, who likewise battled with the dragon and had a council of gods and gave decrees and wielded the thunderbolt. And so were the Greeks borrowing the characteristics of their gods from the Babylonians, even before they knew about the astronomy of the planets was it transmission between cultures because there was definitely some trade and commerce happening was it an archetypal emanation from basic forms that becomes like you know a question that can be discussed all round about but when the greeks received the knowledge of the babylonian astronomy and planetary and star identification and they sought to integrate it into their own culture. They sought for the names of their own gods that had the similar qualities to the Babylonian gods to link um, the names to the planets. And the first place that I, I've, I've spent like a lot of time trying to find the first um, mention 
of this in the Greek literature. And that shows up in um, Plato's work, the um, Epinomis or the Epinomis, depending on how you want to pronounce it, E-P-I-N-O-M-I-S, that most scholars now think was written by one of Plato's students called Philip of Opus, O-P-U-S, who was an astronomer. And that's the first time you see the names of the planets articulated in um, any of the Greek writings. Right, because before and that, they had other descriptive they, they, names. They, know, they really didn't know the planets. Well, but so they, they had... knew a couple of stars that were on Achilles uh, Achilles shield, and they had an idea of um, the rising and setting of some of those stars in terms of agricultural and navigational purposes. They may have had some hints about Venus being morning and evening, but there was no identification of the planets as distinct from any of the stars in the sky until the fifth century BC. Yeah, and if you well, if you look in Greek texts, you're not you can look in the Greek texts. I've been like searching for a long time. You're not going to see those planetary names show up. So one of the points that you were making that's really important here, though, is that the Greeks were actually very, at this point, around 400, 500 BCE, their notion of uh, their their mathematical astronomy was like way behind the Mesopotamians because the Mesopotamians had been doing it for a thousand, two thousand yes, year, yes. years at that point, going back all the way to yeah. two thousand or even maybe three thousand BCE. Whereas the Greeks really didn't start developing a mathematical or complex mathematical astronomy until they started getting this exposure to Mesopotamian culture from mm -hmm. like the uh, 500, 400 BCE forward. And that was mm -hmm. the point at which the names of the gods were deliberately picked to match the Mesopotamian names with mm -hmm. the Greek ones. Yes. So part of the, what's important about that and part of what we've done here in this episode is that the Greeks picked those names and so venus became known as aphrodite or the planet became known as venus slash aphrodite the star of aphrodite right and right. so that's were, mm -hmm. and that's an that, important distinction and that it, starts giving some um mythological associations from the greek tradition with yes. that but part of a side effect of that that i think is really important is then you lose some of the earlier mesopotamian mythological associations mm -hmm. That those earlier cultures would have had with right. Anana, with That's Anana right. and and Ishtar. Mm -hmm. So part of what we're doing this in this episode by um, looking back to the even earlier tradition before the Hellenistic tradition is showing how you actually have to go back to some of the very source root cultures, and you'll find other additional archetypal myths yes. and qualities associated with the gods and the planets that are actually still very real and very mm -hmm. pertinent and can provide valuable insights right. into astrology today. Right. You know, one of the, the classic ones is um, the association in the Hellenistic texts with Saturn associated with seaside trades, with water, with navigation. This is something Schmidt used to always talk about. It's like, how does Saturn get associated with navigation and maritime trades? 
And in the Mesopotamian culture, the planet that was associated with Saturn was Ninurta, and he was the Lord of Irrigation. And that whole culture happened because they learned how to take the waters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and make channels in order to irrigate the land. And hence, you know, civilization, early civilizations happened. So there was some memory of Saturn's association with water coming from the Mesopotamian god Ninurta. But then the Greeks, like maybe they never really knew or they forgot. And it was just, yeah, they put maritime trades under Saturn's significations. Right. And it, and it starts running up against the more conceptual nature of yeah. Hellenistic astrology, where they start treating Saturn as a cold and drying planet. Right. So you run into like a contradiction with the new conceptual structures yeah. in astrology versus the earlier mythological yeah. tradition. Well, that's true. Yeah. And that would be so to bring this point back home to Edhedewana in Hedewana, um, who was this priestess and, and poet in 2300 BCE, in one of her hymns to Inanna, she, one of the things I think is interesting is she really starts emphasizing the contradictory characteristics of Inanna. And I just wanted to read uh, one passage really quickly okay. from um, a book titled Anana Lady of the Largest Heart by Betty DeShong Meter, who's written actually two books on Anana. This is one of her on in Hedewana, and this is one of them. And there's another one that's actually even more extensive. But here's part of the passage of one of the hymns where um, she says, Mistress, you outclass in Lil and On, your praiseworthy path shows force. Forth, without you, there is no fate fixed. Without you, is no keen counsel arrived. Interesting. And that fate fixed point is actually important because Anana is partially associated with divination and other things as well. So she continues on and she says, "To run," because part of the things is this is actually a poem, and you can catch like some of the poetic rhyme that the translator tried to convey, but probably Mm -hmm. not all of it because it's really hard to translate poetry. But that's also what's so impressive about Inhedewana is she's not just a writer, but also a poet who's invoking and and who's using um, Anana as her personal deity. So she says, um, associated with Anana is to run, to steal away, to cool the heart, to soothe, are yours, Anana, fitful wandering, speeding by, rising, falling. Reaching the four are yours, Anana, to smooth the traveler's road, to clear a path for the weak are yours, Anana. Then she goes on to straighten the footpath, to make firm the cleft place are yours, Anana, to destroy, to build, to lift up, to put down are yours, Anana, to turn man into woman, woman into man are yours, Anana, allure. Ardent desire, belongings, households are yours, Anana. Wealth, brisk trading, quick profits, hoard even more are yours, Anana. Prosperous business, abundance of money, indebtedness, ruinous loss are yours, Anana. To teach, watch over, supervise, scrutinize are yours, Anana. Life vigor, 
fitting modesty, male guardian spirits, female guardian spirits, disclosing sacred spots are yours, Anana. To worship in lowly prostration, to worship in high heaven are yours, Anana. The word of rejection, the word of riddance are yours, Anana. And then it breaks off and there's some lines missing. So that's just a part, but it sort right. of brings it around where even this slightly later author of 2300 BC is emphasizing mm -hmm. these contradictory complex yes. characteristics with Anana as part of the core understanding. Right. And and it's also demonstrated in the astronomical cycle of Venus that she rises up to her maximum elongation and then she falls down to sink beneath the horizon. She rises up and she falls down. And so the astronomy of the planet is completely coincident with the qualities um, ascribed to the goddess. Right. That they're not it, separate. Yeah. And in the totality yeah. of the cycle, it the, encompasses right. everything. It encompasses all of that. Visible, invisible, high, low, left, right, morning, evening. Yeah. And during the course of different yeah. parts or different phases of the yeah. cycle or during the course of experiencing it, we experience some of those mm -hmm. differing things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so I think one, one thing we should do before we close, unless you have more you want to say here. Um, just a last what? thing about Inhiduana. Okay. okay. And then we should um, show them um, Astro Seek. Okay. So they can see the dates of the Venus critical dates has been an easy place to find them. Yeah. So the last thing about Inhiduana is at one point, um, at one point in one of yeah. the poems, Inhiduana has this thing where she seems to go into um, a plea to Inanna where it almost takes the form of like a, a prayer or a magical invocation of Inanna, where um, it sounds like Inhiduana had something bad happen to her, where there was some sort of wrongdoing on the part of a man who she names in the poem, and who some of the scholars think was actually a real man who may have somehow cast her out of her priest role, uh, her priestess role, mm -hmm. or somehow been able to like usurp her power and cast her out of her her role somehow or her her temple. And um, it's actually really interesting because in this poem in Heduana, there's this echo from the myth of Inanna itself that sounded almost yeah. sort of like um feminine rage or right. specifically feminine rage at injustices experienced at the hands mm -hmm. of men, as well as maybe a wish, a wish for revenge or vengeance. And I thought that parallel in it, in Hedewana, if that's true, that it was part of her own personal yeah. story, that may have been part of the other reason why it's connected, or there would have been a repetition there between Anana's myth and what actually happened in the life experience of mm -hmm. in Hedewana as the first earliest like woman author that we know of whose whose right. work survives named and then seeing a similar myth passed on in later times during certain venus retrograde cycles mm -hmm. where sometimes 
that's a topic that comes up yeah. or where, for example, that was a large part of the the critical focal point of the Barbie movie in the second half yes. was mm -hmm. her being wronged by um, her former partner, by right. Ken, basically. Right. Um, right. Yeah, the Barbie movie. Yeah, we said the first part was Evening Star Venus, right? Everything. And the second part was Morning Star Venus, where she claims her power and Right. Fights so that's back, gets angry, fights back. Exacts right. justice. Yeah. Re brings the order back into place. Yeah. So that seems like an important yeah. aspect also of the archetype and of some of that, of mm -hmm. the myth and what's sort of like coming forth as yeah. part of that and something that's kind of important to pay attention to as part of the Venus retrograde cycle to some extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. I think that was the last thing okay. there. So one of the astronomical things that you found really useful is that um, Peter from the website astroseek.com has created this really useful, um, what he calls a Venus Rose Cycle ast Astrology Online Calculator, where you can actually look up Venus's phases and all of the different parts of this cycle, both in your birth chart, as well as for the current year or mm -hmm. any point in yes. time. So you just go to, it's like astroseek.com slash calculate dash Venus dash cycle. And you have to set the date of what year you start from, and then it will generate a list of all of the relevant Venus um, dates when it hits different crucial points in the cycle. Mm -hmm. So right right here, we can see when we come up to the current one, the current year, that for example, it shows us that on June 4th, 2023, Venus reached her greatest elongation on June 4th at 28 degrees of Cancer. And then the next day she ingressed into Leo at, at on the 5th of June. And then eventually she reached maximum brightness on July 10th, that she had her evening station, the retrograde station, yeah, right. around July 23rd, and, and so on and so forth. No, right, her heliacal setting, uh, her evening setting um, on August 8th. And then, um, and then in order, and then because the, the interior conjunction or inferior conjunction happens on August 13th here. The, the very last, the very bottom, the last entry, Here all the is. way down, scroll all the way down. Well, I just recalculated oh. it for 20 Oh, you just did it. Okay. okay. So now it's... Um, and then the morning rise happens on August 17th, the greatest elongation on October 23rd. Um, before that, you have the morning station on September 4th. So you can go and you can track the cycle not only for the current year, but you can put in your own birth year. And by just running your finger along the dates to find your birthday and seeing what which of these critical points was before and after of being able to find where on that cycle you were. And one of the things, uh, teachings that I did probably in the 90s, maybe the early 2000s when I was doing this teaching was suggesting that whatever natal Venus phase you are, 
you have a particular resonance with Inanna's situation at that corresponding point in her story. And so I would just ask you all to, for those of you who are interested to research that and then to be able to communicate, like, does that speak, can you relate to that? And I'd be curious to know. It was like workshop work I was doing in the past that I probably haven't for quite a few years now, but I'm glad Chris remembered I gave this talk right in yeah. 2005 or something. So dug out all of the notes on that and we've got here in the last week. Yeah, well, I just remember it because you gave it in like early 2005 and I had just started learning Hellenistic astrology yeah. and getting into ancient astrology. And then I was living in Seattle going to Kepler and I saw you come and give this lecture um, in Seattle for the local astrology group there. And I just loved the lecture and was really struck by it. Um, and also that was, yeah, part of some of the timing of when yeah. I ended up going to Project Hindsight happened after that. But so what you're saying with this is that people should use that table on AstroSeq and then find their birth date and then look at what the last, the previous and the date leading up to that astronomical event is for Venus and what the next important was yeah. after that and figure out where they were born in between two of exactly. the points in the cycle. And then that'll be their natal signature. Right. And then to see if they can relate to the Inanna story at that particular point. Like it's, are you like moving toward two? Are you at the maximum elongation as an evening star? Are you, do you hear the first calls of descent? Are you like in the underworld, <laughs> you know, being totally in pain and anguish? Are you suffering at the zero? And mourning the absence of your lover at the other point. And so see if like you found that you have a life and you go through different spaces, but somehow, oh, I've been here before. Like, why is it that I always end up here? You know, and then things happen and you move on and then some X point again. Oh yeah, like <laughs> I know this spot. And to see if you have, as I said, you have a particular resonance with that point in the story or you can even track it currently and if you're going through certain situations and the unfoldment in your life and venus related things to see if the current phase resonates to the experiences you're having relative to whatever sign and house and aspects um, your natal venus is yeah. And I think even if a person was born in this part of the cycle that is in the more difficult part of Anana's story, that that's yeah. not necessarily always going to be a negative interpretation. But right. sometimes um, those parts of the cycle, especially that are under the beams or retrograde, have to do with um, internalization yes. or sometimes uh, things having to do with invisibility or even mm -hmm. feeling invisible, perhaps. Or right. One of the things we didn't internal. say that's important is that the me medieval astrologers associated, especially Venus retrograde conjunct the sun invisibility with um, uh, interest and participation in occult esoteric matters, initiation, magic, um, hermeticism, Gnosticism. All, all of those experiences and that there is 
like going to the heart of the mysteries of death and regeneration that happens right at that inferior conjunction that's the sort of secret stone of occult and esoteric inquiry is how the you know quest for the eternal life the fountain of youth of dying and being reborn like how do you affect that transformation not necessarily literally but in all the themes of one's life and at the superior conjunction how do you get over your rage to enter into a place of forgiveness and a renewal of trust and interaction with the other and that also is a very profound spiritual transformation that can occur and so it'd be very valuable to look at the whole cycle in terms of the spiritual potentialities that exist right behind the more literal, earthy um, manifestations of human condition. Yeah, for sure. As well as psychological um, yeah. interpretations. Yeah. That's a really good point about occult, though, because occult, the word occult, if you go back to its actual roots, means just means to be hidden. Right. And that's exactly what's happening to Venus right. when she's under the beams as she's right. hidden. And so that keyword of things that are quote unquote occult yeah. would, would be a good one. Yeah. Hidden knowledge. Right. Or mystical knowledge mm-hmm. or other things like that, internal states, including even just like psycho psychotherapy and right, the unconscious realm. You can have powerful psychotherapy um and just delving into. Uh, and uh, one of the things I think is maybe Liz Green said that of the Venus retrograde conjunct the sun, that it's very powerful for the artist's imagination. And sometimes it's the fantasy of eroticism or of sexual or romantic love that is more pleasurable than the actuality of it. And it can be the case that those um images and the imagination get transformed into art and literature and music and that's another possibility of um that venus retrograde conjunction Mm, okay um okay i just wanted to i meant to read one brief concluding remark because i wrote wrote something out but um just wanted to say that um you know, retrogrades are about looking back into the past and reflecting, or at least that's part of what they're about, mm-hmm. especially Venus retrogrades. And in the same way that in Hedewana looked back and found things about the ancient story of Anana that resonated with her present circumstances, we can also look back and learn from the stories of the past and use that to better understand the present and the future. Mm-hmm. So that was the note that I wanted to end this episode right. on. So all right. Well, okay. this is amazing. Thank you yeah. so much. Um, yeah, going back to what yeah. you were saying earlier, I'm glad I saw you give that lecture in 2005, and yeah. I can't believe how this has come around. So the because you know I had seen that lecture and been so moved by it, and then when I saw went and saw the Barbie movie and saw it released on the day Venus retrograde, and that mm-hmm. all of those themes just like came forth, just sort yeah. of gushed forth in the movie. You know, that's all I've been thinking about for the past few weeks. Um, so I'm glad we got a chance to talk about this and share right. it with everybody through yes. this discussion. Okay. So, yeah. Thank you, Chris. And it's been wonderful as always speaking with you and with all the listeners to the amazing astrology podcast that keeps on giving. <laughs>
Yeah. There. So um, where, what do you, what do you have coming up? And oh, where what do I have coming up? Find um, more information this, about your work. Yeah. The second half of 2023, I wanted to return to more of my mythological work that um, I'd been doing prior to Hellenistic astrology. And so this like totally fell into my program for this year, but in October, right. I'm giving a four week class um, through Astro um, Astrology University. I'm calling it Ariadne and Phaedra into the labyrinth of the heart. And I'm exploring their story and its conjunction with the Greek hero Theseus is again dealing with the um, issues around relationship angst and abandonment and redemption and tying that in with looking at ancient history archaeology um, ancient literature and art and in some ways is the teaching I wanted to do on the road in Greece this year but it just didn't come about so I'm transforming that into um, a four-week class with everyone can will look up their asteroids in their chart and see where they fit into that story I'm doing asteroid talks on um, magical transformations, both for um, Jeffrey Wolf Green's um, webinar, conf webinar conference in October, October 7th, um, where I'm looking at Hecate and Circe and Medusa and some other goddesses, and then doing a much more expanded um, talk on that topic for the astromagia conference um, that happens in november and i have a list of about 30 not only practitioners of magic from myth and legend but also from history so i have asteroids for agrippa and paracelsus and albertus magnus and john d and raymond lull and um a list of 30 of them that I'm starting to research in the charts of people who have interest in the um, astral magic. And anyone who has that interest who'd like to send me their birth data um, for my research purposes, that would be wonderful. And then finally in December, I'm doing a live in-person retreat uh, for three days on exploring mythic asteroids and how one moves from myth to interpretive principle and it'll be hands-on where people will get their list of twenty-three thousand asteroids and how to figure out which two or three are the ones that um speak most strongly whose archetypes come most to the surface so um that's sort of what's on my plate and then continuing with uh tony howard's uh classes for his astrology university school and the history of astrology and also uh introduction to hellenistic astrology so all of that you can connect with through my website um if you're interested in follow the um follow the bricks <laughs> yeah and I, I was just looking at your website which is demetragegeorge.com yeah. and um you have so many different classes and recordings there um but at the bottom it mentioned it listed your book mm -hmm. and i just remembered another good resource for people that was inter were interested in a lot of the stuff we just went into is that in volume one of your book ancient astrology and theory mm -hmm. and practice you actually went a lot into the solar phase cycle of the planets right 
and spent a lot of time talking about a lot of the things that we went and mm-hmm. we, we talked about briefly yeah. here in this episode. Right. So I think there's maybe a hundred pages on um, risings and settings and um, so the conjunctions and spe- all, all of that. That's sort of the astronomical underpinning to be able to make greater sense of the myth that is the more emotionally vibrant part of connecting with meaning in your life. Nice. Amazing. I'm so glad you did that treatment because I had to deal with, I tried to deal with that briefly in my book, but then I, yeah, I had to leave Right. Yeah, I know. So that was, that was wonderful to finally um, be able to have a clear understanding of how those cycles unfolded. Cool. All right. Well, people okay. should check out your website, DemetraGeorge.com. I'll put a link in the description. Yeah, below and I this. think if you go on, you'll get like a little thing to sign up for the mailing list. So there's a, you know, mailings that come out every, um, at least every month, sometimes more announcing new classes and courses. So if you get on the list, then you'll get a, an email announcement of what's happening. And um, that will be a more a, a direct way. You can also register if you're interested. Yeah, that seems really important, your newsletter, because I noticed a new one just went out today, but you don't post as much on social media, but you actually no. post like long articles pretty regularly on your newsletter. So it's definitely worth signing up for. Yeah. And um, that is in today's newsletter, there was a, a snafu uh, between announcing um, some course on the lunation phases, but giving the title for the chart calculation course. So that's what was straightening, straightening out right before we started today. But we've had a really great response to how to hand calculate a chart. And a lot of those students are um, probably close to 100 of them, as far as I know, are in the process of learning how to do those calculations. And that's a self-guided course that people can decide to um, purchase and do on their own at any time. Nice. And we talked about the importance of that in our last episode on Heliodora, who was the first Greek astrologer, who was a woman that we know by name in history Mm -hmm. um, prior to Inhedewana or or after Inhedewana. Thanks a lot for joining me today. I really appreciate it. This was great. Mm -hmm. Right. It was a pleasure. Okay. All right. Well, thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Mimi Stargazer, and Jean-Marie Kaplan. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through our page on patreon.com. In exchange, you can get access to bonus content that's only available to patrons of the podcast, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the monthly forecast episodes, our monthly Auspicious Elections podcast, or another exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast, or you can even get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, visit patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. If you're looking to get an astrological consultation, we have a list of recommended astrologers at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. The astrologers on the list are friends of the podcast that have been featured in different episodes over the years, 
and they have different specialties such as natal astrology, electional astrology, sinistry, rectification, or horary astrology. You can get a 10% discount when you book a consultation with one of the astrologers on our list by using the promo code ASTROLOGYPODCAST. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of Solar Fire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. You can get a print copy of the book through Amazon or other online retailers, or there's an ebook version available through Google Books. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course, you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com.